we have been together for several months uh, in a sermon series through the book of Galatians. And as we're here um, almost on the last Sunday of the year, just before Christmas, we are uh, coming to Paul's conclusion of the book of Galatians, uh, as we are in Galatians 6 this morning. We have been in this series that we've titled Set Free, Live Free, because Paul wants us to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ has set us free from our sin and ourselves, and he has set us free to serve one another in love and to live according to the Spirit. Amen? You know, perspective matters. Perspective, if you're not careful, can lead you astray. My dad, growing up, had a saying that he would often uh, throw out there just to, to teach us this exact point. He said this scenario, he would tell us, think about this. There's a man at home with a mask, and another man's coming. What's going on, and what do you think's going to happen next? Now, if we stop and we think about that, maybe your mind immediately goes to my mind that there's, it's Christmas season, right? And so there's a lot of packages that are being left, and there's somebody that's there who is swiping stuff off of the front porch, or there's somebody that's there that's broken into the home, and somebody's coming along. Our perspective, based on where we're at and what we're thinking, can shape how we interpret that question. But it can just as easily be that there is a man standing at home plate with a mask on his face and there's someone running home from third base and you're in the middle of a baseball game. Our perspective matters. Our perspective, depending on how narrow it is or how broad it is or what facts we have or what facts we don't have, can oftentimes not only change our interpretation of what's going on, but it can change our interaction with what's going on. I was listening to a podcast just this week. It was two lawyers that were talking about the two different income, or, uh, outcomes of prominent trials that just recently take, took place, right? Where it was a, a broad perspective in one, the, in, in the conviction of those uh, three men who killed Ahmaud Arbery, it was a broad perspective of the events that led to a conviction where it was maybe a narrow perspective um, up um, in, was it Michigan? Um, or was it Wisconsin? With a young man who was acquitted. Its perspective can change our approach, our interpretation, our engagement in many different things. And in our fallen world, our perspective oftentimes of our life is not only limited, it's broken. And when we live in a perspective of a fallen, broken viewpoint that sees this life and this life alone as all that there is, then we often end up in brokenness making our lives and the lives around us more difficult. But as Paul is concluding his letter, Paul wants to make sure that his audience, both then and now, have a much broader perspective than the one that we tend to have, which is based on what we can see, what we can feel, what we can measure, what is right in front of us. Paul wants to make sure that we live with an eternal perspective a cross-centered perspective, because the cross changes everything. Look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. 
but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, again, I thank you for the privilege and the opportunity that I have before me now to open your word, to speak, to once again proclaim the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I start even now confessing my own tendency to see what's only right in front of me, to make my life all about checking off whatever the next task is on my list, seeing with eyes focused on the things of this world and the flesh, instead of living, Heavenly Father, with a perspective on eternity, a perspective, Heavenly Father, that is shaped, that is driven by the cross of Jesus Christ. To live in my own power, in my own strength, instead of a constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit, So, Heavenly Father, I I pray that this morning as we conclude our look at this book in Galatians, you would give us a better perspective to see with eyes, Heavenly Father, that are blessed and shaped by our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to allow your grace and your mercy, Heavenly Father, to change our perspective, our pride, our source of identity, and instead, Heavenly Father, to live completely dependent upon you and upon your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take hold of my heart and my mind and my mouth right now, that in all things I might bring you glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. And amen. So, we're here at the conclusion of Galatians. It's only uh, fitting That as Paul is wrapping up what it is that he would communicate not only to them but to you and to me to realize that in these last final verses, Paul very much reviews, even if it's in a concise kind of way, the entire book that has happened so far. What's happened here is probably the, the formal part of Paul's letter ends in verse 10, and then Paul takes from the scribe, if you will, who would have been recording the letter as Paul dictated it to him. Paul takes up the pen from him, and as he concludes it, he, he begins writing his own personal final thoughts to just hammer home the last bit of what he wants to make sure that everybody walks away with. And that's why he says, see with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. Paul has taken the pen and Paul is writing almost like if you were going to to type up a letter now or you were going to type up some type of document in our modern day, we would use maybe bold or underlined or italicized fonts to, to make sure that everybody understands this is the emphasis. Paul now writes in probably what is most likely all capital letters to distinguish the fact that yes, he is confirming everything that has been said, but he is reaffirming some specific things. 
And so if you remember the problem that is being faced by the Galatian churches, Paul's not writing to one specific congregation, but instead he's writing to a region where many churches exist, where Paul had planted many of these churches. And in his missionary journey as he has moved on, some false teachers had come in behind him. And they began preaching and teaching a different gospel. So when Paul opens the book of Galatians, Paul takes this different gospel to task. He speaks a blessing, grace for those who have received deliverance of their sins, but he also speaks a curse upon anyone and everyone who would preach a gospel different than the one that Paul first preached. Remember, he spoke a a very bold curse, not only on these false teachers, but on an angel and even on himself. He said, if I come back to you and I preach anything that is different from the message that I first proclaimed, he basically says, let me be damned. It is that serious. Paul is writing to correct a false teaching that we see repeatedly has serious consequences as Paul repeatedly urges the the Galatian Christians, don't buy into this because the eternal consequence is what? Apostasy, which is separation from God. It's choosing a different path, a path into separation from God. So the urgency that is throughout this letter is profound. And Paul is repeatedly explaining the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ against the backdrop of the teachings of these false teachers. Specifically, these teachers have come in and proclaimed a diluted gospel that says what you need is not just belief in Jesus, but behaviors in addition to your belief in Jesus Christ, specifically conforming to the Old Testament law. The particular issue at hand is the observable, quantifiable step of circumcision. Because that's something that's verifiably provable. We can count the number of men who have been circumcised. And so that is what is at issue here. But Paul is repeatedly telling them, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus and anything is a false gospel that results in eternal damnation and separation from God. He says, don't let anyone dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, he is repeatedly preaching this message that we have come to understand to be the true gospel, which is the proclamation that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, period. Not by anything that we bring to the table, Not by anything that we accomplish. Not by any record of righteousness of our own. But exclusively and solely in Jesus Christ. So Paul, as he's concluding it, brings these themes back together. As he's talked about those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone are the true Israel. They're the true offspring of Abraham. They are the true promised heirs. And they have been set free not only from their sin, but from themselves. This dependence on themselves and their record of righteousness to either make God happy on the one hand, or to keep God happy on the other. But instead, he repeatedly comes back to it's Jesus and only and always and ever Jesus. Period. 
And so since you've been set free in Christ, don't use your freedom, he says, as an opportunity to just run out and do whatever you want in a license to sin, but instead live a life now dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Your freedom is meant to unlock a relationship with the Holy Spirit such that as you live, you live out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. As you live in relationship with Him, He begins to cultivate in your life all of these fruit that looks like how you love others. All of the fruit of the Spirit are, are building a positive relationship with other people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those pretty much assume that there's somebody else involved. And so living out your freedom looks like loving other people and serving one another. And Paul calls us, as we saw last week, to commit ourselves to reaping in the Spirit by loving others and being dependent upon Him. But here, as he concludes, he brings back in front of the Galatian Christians and in front of you and me the reality that there are only really two ways. There are only really two perspectives. He's, Paul says there's the gospel that I preached, which is the real gospel, or there's the false gospel of these false teachers, one way leads to life everlasting and a new creation in Jesus Christ, and one leads to an eternal separation. One has results in this life that look like persecution and pain and suffering and separation and problems and trials and, and strife as you are competing against the world and the own flesh inside of yourselves, but has the eternal reward of being in the presence of God forever. The other one may make life really easy right here, right now. You may be powerful and prominent and popular and have possessions and everything else, but it results in pain and suffering for all of eternity. And he says, which one are you going to choose? There's two perspectives. The first that he explains is the perspective of the false teachers, which is the perspective of the flesh. Paul summarizes what is the problem that he sees with these false teachers. They're focusing on what they can see. They're focusing on what they can measure. They're focusing on what they can quantify. They're focusing on the behavior of the Gentile Christians. Again, their message is that you are saved not only by your belief in Jesus, but also by your right behavior, specifically conforming to the Old Testament laws and living as the ancient people of God, the Jewish cultural people. And circumcision is the focus, again, because it's the most measurable, quantifiable factor in this picture. But Paul, however, says there is a broken perspective a perspective that's really motivated by fear on one hand and pride on the other. Because he says, listen to what he says. He says, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. Now, the irony in that is just should cause us to chuckle a little bit. Because we're talking about circumcision. I don't know about you, but the process, the medical procedure of circumcision is not necessarily a good showing in the flesh. But that's exactly what these false teachers are focusing on. The human flesh. 
what's in front of them. Their perspective is tied to this world, to this life, to these behaviors. They want to make a good showing for the world to see, a good showing for others to see, and so they want to force you, compel you to be circumcised. And they only do it, he says in verse 12, because they're afraid. Fear can be a dangerous motivator. When our life is driven by an earthly, this life perspective, when all we can see is what's right in front of us here and today, when we live by the world's mantra that says, live in the moment. It's my life. It's now or never. I'm not going to live forever. So I'm just going to live while I'm alive. When we live directly focused on what we can see, what we can quantify, what we can touch, what we can feel, what we can taste, what we can experience, when we live life in a fleshly perspective, namely physically, a physical perspective, what's here and now, then it only makes sense that what we want to do is accumulate for ourselves power. Because power allows me to accomplish in this life what I want. It only makes sense that we would strive for possessions because the things that I get in this life might give me temporary pleasure and that's all that I'm living for maybe it's prominence or it's position in a city and it's my reputation because my a reputation opens doors so that I can go and I can do and I can experience a life that is quote-unquote blessed and best And where and when any of that is threatened, that's when we respond in fear. And we lash out. And anyone or anything that threatens that power or that position or our possessions or our popularity becomes a threat to my life by my design. That's why you see churches all over the nation, historically, they attack the whistleblower. Because the reputation of the church is everything, and so when someone stands up and makes an accusation of some kind of abuse, some kind of misdeed, something that has gone wrong, the church is so terrified about losing their reputation, their power, their position, their prominence, being sued and losing their possessions, that they will attack the very victim that has brought it to light. Because what is being threatened is their temporal position. And they can't even see the victim. These false teachers are afraid of being persecuted. The fact of the matter is, Jesus has told us from the very beginning that he was persecuted. And so if he is going to be persecuted, if he is going to be killed, how can we expect anything less? And yet, we are constantly afraid for ourselves. And these false teachers are afraid of being persecuted, and so they want to compromise with their Jewish relatives and say, hey, listen, this is still an offshoot of of true Judaism, and so we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're going to make sure that everybody is doing just like we're going to walk in the the path of the Old Testament. We're just going to bring Jesus in and add Jesus to this system that already exists. And so they're afraid of being persecuted. And in doing so, they're watering down the gospel and preaching a false gospel. They're hypocritical. 
right? Isn't that what Paul goes on to say in the very next verse? Those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They have a standard that they can't keep themselves. And they're not necessarily concerned with whether or not these Gentiles ultimately keep the the very law that they are imposing upon them. Instead, all they care about are the numbers. All they care about are the circumcisions. Because they can go back to their friends or to their family or to the the people in Judea, Judea or the people that are persecuting them and say, hey, look, look at the numbers. Don't look at the lives. But look at all of the numbers of the people that have submitted to this. Not only are they afraid, not only are they hypocritical, they're just proud. Because after all, what do the numbers do? The numbers boost their prominence, their popularity among a specific people. A people that they're afraid of. And so Paul says that they, though they don't even keep the law themselves, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They may boast in your conformity to a specific religious system. That they may boast in your presence. Paul's insinuation here is that these men are more interested in building a safe and successful ministry than the one that follows the pattern of a suffering Savior. Many of you know we just got a puppy recently. And so we're in the process. She's about four months old. And she's at the place where she's getting a little more comfortable around the house. She's not a little as, quite as timid. And so she is going, testing our, our limits and the boundaries and we're watching, I'm trying to, to learn, okay, what can I do? How can I to nip this in the bud? What training is there that I can do? And it's all about positive reinforcement here and potential negative reinforcement there. And the truth of the matter is, it's not just how we train and teach our puppies. That's, that's kind of, in a sense, what we, we talk about when we're training our kids. Positive reinforcement on the one hand. Thank you for doing that. You did such a great job. I want to see more of that in the future. Negative reinforcement on discipline on the backside when something goes wrong. And the truth of the matter is what we repeatedly do is we train even from the youngest stages our children to function in a meritocracy. If I do what's right, I'll be rewarded. If I do what's wrong, I'll be punished. And the experience of my life is better when I adhere to certain moralistic behaviors. And that makes sense, right? Because after all, behavior is what can be measured. Behavior is what can be quantified. Behavior can be immediately addressed. And when we immediately address behavior, we can get quickly the appropriate desired results. A parent can get a well-behaved, compliant child. A, A company can get a positive customer experience or achieve higher product output if we address and correct the behaviors. We don't just do this, though, in the world. We do it in our churches as well. Because in our drive for successful churches, we end up focusing on what can be quantified, what can be measured. And in doing so, we easily slip into a finite perspective that focuses on a morality that can be measured and a Sunday morning performance that can be perfected. Instead of the messy day-to-day life, 
struggle of our heart and our surrender to Jesus Christ. We end up living our lives, quantifying our successes with baptism numbers and budget dollars and Sunday morning or event attendance. And we run away from anything that would threaten those measures of success. I mean, isn't that what we, how we quantify success in anything, especially in the church? That it's the churches of 5,000, it's the churches of 500 that are more successful than the churches of 50. What happens when we begin focusing on success and these measures, temporal, fleshly measures of success, we run away from anything that could offend or that could result in persecution or pushback. Anything that that could result in people leaving becomes anathema, even if it's the proclamation of the truth. And so we end up spending our time focusing our efforts on suppressing negative behaviors or pushing positive behaviors. We preach sermons like 10 steps to being a better fill-in-the-blank husband, wife, parent, Or we spend our time attacking the broken behaviors of the people who are out there that we would never be like them, right? How many preachers spend, can get, I can get amens all day long and build an audience all day long if all I do is stand right here and tell you what's wrong with the world out there. Spend our time pointing our fingers at the brokenness around us and we just create this nice little holy huddle where we feel self-righteous. God calls us to something bigger. God calls us something to better. And this is Paul's warning to the Galatians that there are consequences. The consequences of embracing this fallen and finite perspective that can only see what is here in the flesh, can only see what's right in front of me, that can only see the size of our buildings or the size of our budget or the number of people and the number of followers and so on and so forth. When we only see what's right in front of us, what's measurable, we're focused on the flesh. And it's entirely possible to build a quote-unquote thriving ministry with tremendous numbers that feels powerful, that feels safe from the dangers of the world, all while sending people to an eternal suffering and pain. They're safe in the here and now from the persecution of the world, from the persecution of one another, from being uncomfortable by being around people who are not like me, but who are in danger of the eternal fires of God's judgment in hell. And that's why we need something bigger. That's why we need something better. That's why we need the cross. Because in that where Paul immediately goes is he has confronted the false teaching of the, of the false teachers. Verse 14, he says, Far be it from me to boast except in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that Paul goes to the cross of all of the things that he could have talked about, of all of the things that he could have boasted in. After all, doesn't Jesus say that all power in heaven on earth, Matthew 28, has been given unto him? All power up there and all power down here belongs to Jesus Christ. Couldn't Paul boast in the power of Christ? Couldn't Paul boast in the perfection of Christ? 
That he was holy and he was spotless and he was righteous. But Paul instead focuses on the cross. The notion of the cross, the event of the cross, that thing that is the cross, was something that no polite Roman would have even uttered. They wouldn't have spoken the word cross. It was so shameful. Because after all, the cross that you and I put on jewelry and around our necks and everything else, the cross was an instrument of death and torture. Like a noose or an electric chair. It was a place of guilt. It was a place of shame. It was a place of punishment. And so no good, upright, upstanding Roman citizen ever even actually uttered the word cross. Instead, they used some euphemism where they talked about the unlucky tree. Nobody wanted to be associated with the cross because that was the place where criminals, where terrorists, where usurpers and treasonous militants got their comeuppance. Paul says that. That's what I boast in. Because Paul understood that it was on that tree, on that unlucky tree, on that cross, that the perfect Son of God took his place. The gospel of Jesus Christ boils down to this and this alone, brothers and sisters. Jesus in my place. If you can understand that, if you can live that, if you can speak and teach and share that, Jesus took my place, the place that I belonged, the place that I deserved is on a cross, the place of torture and punishment for rebels, for criminals. That's the place I deserved to go. That's my place. Jesus took my place. He bore my guilt. He bore my shame, which he never deserved. And he took every last drop. Every drop. Such that what Paul has taught and what you and I can believe and claim and accept is simply this. Jesus took all all of the punishment that I deserve. Which means what? There's none left for me. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week or five years from now. There's no punishment left for me if my faith is in Jesus Christ. The person who deserves death and damnation and separation from God, that person is what? Dead. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, such that he who knew no sin became sin for me so that I might what? Become the righteousness of God. Paul says that's the freedom that you have, brothers and sisters. Not freedom to enter into another system of slavery where you're trying to keep God happy, but you are completely set free. 
So live free. Because Jesus has done absolutely everything. You can't add to his work. You can't take away from his work. All you can do is surrender to it and receive it as God's grace and gift. Paul says, I'll not boast in anything else. I'll not boast in numbers. I'll not boast in morality. I'll not boast in powers, possessions. I'll not boast in popularity or anything else. I will boast in one thing alone, and that is Jesus did everything for me. And I'm walking in his freedom, and I'm walking in his power, and I'm walking in his prominence. Everything is his. I don't have to earn my righteousness. I receive it. And when we see the cross of Jesus Christ and we allow the cross of Jesus Christ to change our perspective, we begin to see things like Paul saw them. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When you're dead and you're in your box or your little jar, whichever one you're going to be in, are you going to care about anything? The money, power, who's in the White House, anything like that? You're going to be, if you are in Jesus Christ, you're going to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. Amen? Are you going to care about the stuff left here? Paul says that's not just what you will experience. It should be what you are experiencing now. Because if you are in Christ, you have died to the things of this world. And you are a citizen of heaven. And you should live that way now. That should shape your perspective, the way that you interact with the stuff in this world such that your home is not your power, your possession, your safe place, or anything like that. It's an instrument that God has gifted you with that you might serve those that are around you and show them the love of Jesus Christ and build the kingdom. Your bank account isn't yours so that you can create as comfortable of a life here and now as you possibly can. It's a tool and an instrument that God has blessed you with to steward so that you might build the kingdom of God. Your gifts and your talents are not yours to hoard and keep to yourself for the entertainment of you and for your family, but ultimately that you might serve God here and now and you might expand the kingdom of God. And we can live in this world with our eyes on the character of God in the world such that we call out and we cry out for justice, we cry out for righteousness, we cry out for mercy, and we live as people of grace in a graceless society. I am a kingdom, or I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Why? Because I've died to this world. And I'm alive in Jesus Christ. I don't have to wait until the day, the date that's going to be put on my tombstone to start living from that perspective. I've been crucified to the things of this world, and the things of this world have been crucified to me. Such that I don't have to be afraid of persecution and of suffering, of poverty, of any of it, because it's just temporary. If I'm a child of the king, I'm an heir to the throne. And when I live with an eternal perspective, 
a cross-centered and gospel-shaped perspective, then I'm not bound to the difficulties of this life. I can understand that whatever sufferings I experience here and now are temporary and they are nothing in comparison to the blessing that is still to come. My best life is not now, brothers and sisters in Christ. My best life is to come. And my job is to live as Christ commanded us to pray, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. We get to be agents and instruments just like Jesus Christ as he walked into the world and he proclaimed the kingdom of God is what? At hand. Wherever Christ was, was where the kingdom of God was manifested. If you are in Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit such that the Spirit lives in you and as Paul says in Galatians, you can cry out, Abba, Father, then where you are, the Spirit of God is. Where the Spirit of God is, the kingdom exists. And it's our responsibility not merely to live for our best world, our best life, our best nation, the best for our nation, the best for our community, the best for my home, the best for your workplace and your home is that the kingdom of God would be manifested. And that comes from a people who are fully, completely surrendered and submitted to a cross-shaped perspective. It's not in it for me to build my best kingdom here but instead to look to that eternal kingdom because that's what Paul says. Circumcision counts for nothing nor uncircumcision. Here's the thing. Paul has been proclaiming against these false teachers. It's not about circumcision, period, either way. It's not about whether you are circumcised or even whether you're not. Paul's been taking them to task about their teaching on circumcision, but Paul is not giving the Galatian Christians, the Gentile Christians, the right to go around boasting about the fact that they refuse to be circumcised. He says it's not about your flesh at all. It's about what? New creation. Because all those who are in Christ are what? A new creation in Christ. A creation whose reality and eternity is ahead of us and not now that's tied to the recreation of this earth and the culmination, the consummation of all of God's promises, such that at the end, at the end of the book, at the end of the, the book of Revelation, what do we find? That everything that is wrong is made right. Everything that is broken is repaired. Everything that is fallen is restored. And that's the place of perfect peace and rest as God makes his kingdom here on earth in a new creation, consummated in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, for all those who walk by this, may peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. When we walk and rest in the faith and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be at rest, we can experience peace because we receive mercy. And like Paul we can face whatever the consequences are in this life because as Paul concludes, he says, don't let anybody cause trouble anymore. You want to talk about work done in the flesh? You want to talk about circumcision and the scars that exist about that? He says, I have scars. Scars that are the result of my faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Scars that mirror those of my Savior. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that when God raised Jesus from the dead, 
gave him that glorified body. God gave him a glorified body that still had scars. Isn't that what he says to the disciples? He says, see my hands, see my feet, touch my side, feel the scars. Jesus exists in heaven today with scars. As a constant reminder that no matter what it is that you or I face in this life for his name, he's been there. He knows the ache, the pain, the suffering that you might face. And he was able to endure it, what? By setting his eyes on the promises of God. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, is what Hebrews tells us. Brothers and sisters, you and I have the same joy promised to us. That even if our suffering results in our death in this life, it means that we enter into God's eternal presence forever and ever and ever and experience everlasting life. And so Paul blesses us with a grace that comes only from God to those who are in Christ as he ends. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. With all of his frustration, with all of his clarity and his force that he has spoken with as he's talked to these Galatians, he nevertheless has confidence even in the end that what God has done in them he will finish and perfect in each and every one of them. Such that Paul ends this by calling them brothers. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, the challenge of the Galatians. The challenge from Paul is you've got two different perspectives. A perspective on the one hand that doesn't see past the nose on your face and that lives for me and for mine and for this life here and now. That, like I said earlier, may be safe from persecution and challenge and anything else. But that suffers an eternity under the wrath of God. Or there's the true gospel of Jesus Christ that says turn from yourself, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus and the cross and what he accomplished there. And though as you live out your faith in that it may result in suffering here and now, it ends with the joy of being with God forever. So live as one filled with that joy now by trusting in Jesus. Where are you? Are you, like me, often prone to live with your eyes on the next task, on what can be quantified, what can be measured, what can be touched, what can be seen, what can be handled, because after all, then I get to be in control and things happen the way I want them? Or are you surrendered day in and day out to Jesus Christ that he might accomplish for you and in you what you'll never be able to accomplish in yourself? I invite you, if you would, would you bow your heads, would you close your eyes, would you go before the Lord and would you ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, would you show me? Show me how it is that I need to respond. How can I live a life fully surrendered to the truth of the gospel? How can I live with a perspective on eternity 
that is mine because of the cross of Jesus Christ? How can I lay down the passions, the desires of my flesh that I might live for the kingdom now? Take a moment and pray. And I'll close this in just a moment.